0: You can open up your Bible, if you have one, to the book of Deuteronomy. We're going to be in Deuteronomy chapter 1 today, uh, trying to finish out this chapter. Uh, If you were here with us last week when we met outside, which I'm glad we're not trying to meet outside today, uh, it was a good choice in providence and hindsight, and God was kind to us uh, to give us a nice day outside last week. But we started the book of Deuteronomy and got just nine chapters in. Uh, We're going to try to do many more than that today, uh, get to the end of the chapter. Uh, But uh, last week, if you were with us, I mentioned uh, President George Washington's farewell address, and I, I, I was mentioning how Deuteronomy is kind of like a farewell address of Moses. I want to share a quote, actually, from near the very end of George Washington's farewell address. If anybody is fans of the musical Hamilton, like I am, this has been made famous even in that musical. They recite it at the end of the song, One Last Time, uh, if it sounds familiar to you. But these are Washington's words written by Alexander Hamilton uh, that he gave to the country. This was some of his closing thoughts at the end of a really excellent excellent speech, but I think he misses something and gets some things wrong uh, even as he writes this, but, but he wrote this near the conclusion of that farewell address. He wrote, Though in reviewing the incidents of my administration, I'm unconscious of intentional error, I am nevertheless too sensible of my defects, not to think it probable that I may have committed many errors. I shall also carry with me the hope that my country will never cease to view them with indulgence and that after 45 years of my life dedicated to its service with an upright zeal, the faults of incompetent abilities will be consigned to oblivion as I myself must soon be to the mansions of rest." That is a fascinating quote, Uh, and I think if you think about what he is saying, and I I realize George Washington was not talking about sin specifically, he was talking about error. Those are a bit different, Uh, but it is interesting to me uh, that how reflective what he said here can be reflective of our attitude toward our failures, towards our sin. He says, he has the audacity to say, I am unconscious of intentional error. That's a big statement to make. That I have not made any conscious errors. And then he kind of makes this very odd statement to me. He says, but, it's almost like he knows that can't be true. And he says, but I'm too sensible of my defects. Not to think it probable, I may have committed many errors. And so it's like this half-hearted kind of acknowledgement. Yeah, maybe I messed up. Probably I messed up. I don't know what they are, but I probably messed up a lot. But then, even acknowledging that, his hope is that people will forget those things, right? That, that, that as they come aware of them, as they become aware of flaws, uh, things that he may have done that were wrong, his hope is that they will be consigned to oblivion, that they'll be forgotten, that they will not be viewed on his record, they'll not be viewed as part of his legacy. He hopes that they can be Uh, Indulged, even they can be kind of expunged from his record, and I think this is true of us. And I know he's speaking about errors, but as we think about sin in our life, many times we may have the audacity to say, "I'm not even aware that I am sinning," because I think everything I do is right. I think that I'm making the right decisions. We may deny the very reality of sin in our life. We may try to pretend that it's not even there. And we may, even when we're aware of those things, and I'm not saying Washington was necessarily trying to do this, we may tend, even if our sins become undeniable we can start to try to conceal them. We can start to try to hide them from the view of other people and just hope that they forget them. We certainly don't try to revisit them and and air them out in front of people. We just hope that they kind of fade into the background, kind of fade into history, that they're never remembered by other people because we care very, very much about our reputations, don't we? We don't want to be viewed as sinners. We don't want to have our rebellion against God even known by people, and we certainly don't want it revisited by people. And we try to not even revisit it ourselves. We try to just let the past be past, let my mistakes of the past just stay in the past, and we don't see value in acknowledging them, or in revisiting them and seeing uh, what actually took place. Why did I do that? What was going on in my heart? What were the consequences that unfolded from that? And we have this human tendency to deny our sin or to conceal it and certainly not to revisit it. But I think what we're going to see in Deuteronomy 1, the the bulk of this chapter today that we're going to look like, is that the revisiting of our past sins is actually a surprising source of wisdom that it's not something that we should steer clear of and just always let my sin stay in the past, don't want to see it, don't want to revisit it. But we're going to see that they revisit some pretty dark times in the history of their people and even for some of them their very lives. And Moses is going to bring he's not going to try to conceal it. He's going to try to bring it right out in front of them and say do you guys remember this? What happened? Like do you remember how we rebelled against God? And he's doing it not to shame them, not to condemn them but to be a source of wisdom for them as they face similar situations for that day. And So I think we'll see in this text the answer to that question of whether revisiting, remembering our own rebellion against God is a value. And I think we'll see that yes, it is. And so we're going to start in Deuteronomy 1.9 today here in just a moment. But I want to refresh kind of what Deuteronomy is in case you weren't with us last week. uh, So we can kind of get up to speed before I read part of today's text. Like I mentioned, the book of Deuteronomy, last week I framed it like a farewell address of Moses to the nation of Israel. That's how the book starts, right? It says, these are the words that Moses spoke to all Israel And we talked about how it comes at a pivotal time. This book is kind of like a speech given by Moses or a series of speeches by Moses to people at a really pivotal time. It's this generation we're going to even read about now who was a second generation after the Exodus. God had rescued their parents and grandparents, maybe even some of them who are older, uh, from slavery in Egypt. But through a series of events we're going to read about today, they as a nation have had to wander in the wilderness for 40 years now. And now they're about to come to the promised land again for the second chance, the second opportunity to actually go in the land. And Moses is speaking to that group of people in that situation. It's this monumental, pivotal moment in the history of Israel But I I want to mention before we read this text today, uh, another uh, hanger maybe or a way to frame this book that may be helpful to you. Because yes, this is a farewell address of Moses. He's about to die. Uh, He's not going to go in the land with them. But it's a farewell address given in the context of something bigger. Uh, And when that farewell address was given, it's actually in what we would call a covenant renewal ceremony right? God had, 40 years prior at Mount Sinai, God had established this covenant with his people. He had given them these guidelines of, of how to live, uh, but now it's been 40 years and they're renewing that covenant with this new nation of, or this new generation, new generations of people. It's kind of like, I don't know if any of you have seen, or maybe you've done this yourself, we're familiar with wedding vow renewals, right? Like where couples for different reasons, maybe they got married a decade before. Or 40 years before, uh, they sometimes will have these ceremonies where they're going to make vows again to each other, not as if those first ones didn't happen, right? But they're going to say those same vows. They're going to renew their commitment to each other. They're going to say, I still vow to do this. I still vow to do that. And sometimes they're even more meaningful, right? Than what you said when you were 21 or whatever, and you're just uh, head over heels in love. Sometimes they're even more meaningful, even though you're saying the same things. It's a way to renew that covenant, to renew the bond and the, the vow. That you have made to each other. And so, as they stand in the plains of Moab about to go into the promised land, it's like a renewal of the covenant that God made with them at Sinai. Uh, And one thing I want to note is that we have found, as we've studied uh, ancient documents and whatnot, that the book of Deuteronomy, in its written form, containing all these speeches of Moses, is actually really similar to treaties that were established between kings and their subjects, so to speak, in that day and age, in that culture, that region of the world. They would have these written documents, these treaties that I want to put up a slide here that I think you'll be able to see. And I'm not going to belabor this. You can learn about this stuff in seminary classes, but it's, it's interesting uh, to know just as we get into Deuteronomy, that those treaties we have found in the ancient world and what Deuteronomy seems to largely match with, but it's between God and his people, is that they'd have these sections. They would start with like a, what people would Call a historical prologue or like the backstory, so to speak, of who these people are that are going to make an agreement together. And then there would be this big section of stipulations like, I'll do this, you do this, you do this, I'll do this, like the, what they were obliging themselves to. That's going to be what a lot of Deuteronomy is. But then near the end of those documents, they would have witnesses, like saying, hey, we have witnessed that they're agreeing to this, they're agreeing to this. And then at the very end, they would have these blessings and curses, saying if you keep this, These are blessings that come to you. These are rewards, so to speak, benefits that come to you. If you break this, this is a curse that will come upon you. These are consequences that will come because of your breach of this contract. And it's fascinating how Deuteronomy largely lines up with that very thing and why it starts with some of the history before it gets into the rules, before they get into the stipulations of how God wants them to live. Moses is going to remind them of the history, the backstory of God and his people. And so we're going to look at this today. We're going to continue in that historical prologue section of Deuteronomy, learning more of some of the backstory between God and his people. And we're going to go through this one paragraph at a time, so, uh, roughly. We're going to start at verse 9 and go down to verse 18. We'll pause, then we'll read the next chunk, pause, read the third chunk, and pause. Side note, as we go through Deuteronomy, we're going to be taken some long sections of scripture. A lot of times we'll preach on like two verses or something. This is a whole chapter, so we're not going to be able to answer every question, go down every trail, but we, I trust in God's kindness he'll help us see the big picture and then see its relevance even for us today. And so Moses in this first chapter, he's going to recount the rebellion of God's people. That'll mostly start down in verse 19. We'll get there in a moment. But in this first paragraph, 9 through 18, before he recounts their rebellion and makes them remember that, he's going to talk about an interesting thing. It's this establishing of leaders of all things. It may seem like a weird place to start, but that's where he starts, and that's where we'll start. So follow along with me, Deuteronomy 1, verses 9 through 18. So Moses spoke this to the people of Israel. At that time I said to you, I'm not able to bear you by myself. I know, he's talking about 40 years prior. Okay, that's the setting, what he's hearkening their minds back to, referring them back to. So he says, at that time I said to you, I'm not able to bear you by myself. The Lord your God has multiplied you and behold, you are today as numerous as the stars of heaven. May the Lord, the God of your fathers, make you a thousand times as many as you are and bless you as he has promised you. How can I bear by myself the weight and burden of you and your strife? Choose for your tribes wise, understanding, and experienced men, and I will appoint them as your heads. And you answered me, The thing that you've spoken is good for us to do. So I took the heads of your tribes, wise and experienced men, and set them as heads over you, commanders of thousands, commanders of hundreds, commanders of fifties, commanders of tens, and officers throughout your tribes. And I charged your judges at that time, Hear the cases between your brothers and judge righteously between a man and his brother or the alien who is with him. You shall not be partial in judgment. You shall hear the small and the great alike. You shall not be intimidated by anyone for the judgment is God's. And the case that is too hard for you, you shall bring to me and I will hear it. And I commanded you at that time all the things that you should do. So Moses, in this section, as he's starting to recount some of the history, the backstory of God and his people, he starts by reminding them of how he had established leaders amongst them. Uh, And if you're thinking about this, think what's going on. Moses is going to try to explain 40 years of backstory and just like what to us is a couple chapters. So anything he mentions is going to be important. It, it, he's not just mentioning random stuff. Like he's mentioning these things for a reason. And that, that what he recounts here is very interesting and very significant if we think about what's going on. That he's reminding them how leaders had been established. Okay? And what he recounts for them, just to recap the history, is this. It's, he's recounting how 40 years prior, he had really started as the leader. It was already a huge nation. At that point in time, he had already started to feel the weight of his own weakness, the weight of his own limitation as one man. Even though God had given these tremendous gifts, he knew the weight of responsibility. He knew the scope of it. That was something he could not bear himself, something that he could not do on his own, right? We may be tempted to think he was complaining, but I think if you look at verse 11, he was not complaining. He's wanting the nation to keep growing. Like he's wanting God's blessing to keep expanding. He's not just complaining and, and murmuring in his heart. He, he, I think he is thankful that the nation is large, but he knows he can't do it by himself. And so what happened back then, 40 years, that he recounts for them, is he has them, this is verse 13, he has them choose from amongst them. They were divided into tribes, right? He has from among them, he has them pick men that he he qualified as wise, understanding, and experienced. Uh, men that these tribes would pick that could be of help to him, that could help him in the leadership, the governance, the judging of cases even amongst this nation. And they do. They pick these, uh, these men and then Moses appoints them. He appoints them to these various tasks. We don't have time to get into all the weeds of what these different tasks were. But there's different labels given to them, right? He, he uses the word heads of the people, verse 13. He uses the word commanders, like verse 15, which would have been important militarily, right? Uh, of different sizes of units of people. And then in verse 16, he refers to what he called judges of the people who would hear cases. And so he, he appoints these different people to different offices, different functions, these men into different roles within the nation. And so the question would be, why did he put that here? Like if he's pulling, uh, pulling from 40 years of history, why this? Like why does he remind them of this? And if we think about what's going on, it makes perfect sense. Moses is about to die, right? Right? We know that we'll see, if we've read the four books prior, we know he's about to die. He's not going into the land with them. Uh, And so he knows, no matter how they have viewed him, he's about to be off the table. He's about to be gone in the org chart of Israel, right? However they see it. Like, he's about to be gone. And he knows that as these people go in, not just as they initially fight, but then as they live in this land, they're going to need more people to follow, more people to lead, more people to govern, more people to judge the kingdom. the difficult things that come up amongst them, he knows they're going to need that. And he's reminding them that even 40 years prior, they had started to establish this, right? They had started to see, it's not just dependent on one man. It's not just dependent on one gifted leader to guide you and shepherd you and, and teach you that there's a multiplicity of people, even in this nation that are gifted, that are wise, that are experienced, who can help govern, who can help lead, who can help protect even this nation, and we can learn from this, I think, even as the people of God today, even as a local church today, we can learn from this text the, important, what, the importance of what I would call, and I didn't make up this term, it's a, a common one, but the importance of having a plurality of leaders amongst the people of God. That it becomes very unhealthy and dangerous when churches, when groups of Christians have one singular person that they find leadership from. That they just see, here's the person, we're going to listen to him, we're going to follow him, we'll do what he says... And they, they don't start to see that there's a giftedness amongst many people in the people of God, that there's experience and wisdom, that there's diversified gifts amongst the people of God. And Moses wanted them to know that that is a good thing. That is something to strive for, is not just to have one person at the top, but to have multiple people that at different levels and different responsibilities that you can look to for guidance, for instruction, for encouragement, for even protection for yourself. And so this benefits, if you think about this, having multiple leaders, a plurality of leaders in a church is really helpful for the leaders themselves And it's helpful for the people at large, right? It's helpful for the people themselves because no human being is intended to bear full responsibility for an entire group of people. That that we weren't made to do that. We don't have capacity to do that. So as we expand leadership, as we multiply it in a group of believers, uh, there is a shared responsibility that actually multiplies rather than divides, right? That there's an ability for those people to care for each other, help fill in where there's gaps, where there's blind spots in each other. Whereas if you just have it reside in one person, there's going to be holes, there's going to be weaknesses that that are not filled. And so it benefits the leaders themselves, and then it benefits the people. Um, Moses knew there's limits to what I can do. And if I just try to do all this, there's going to be all these people who are hurt, all these people who are just uncared for, all these people, all these conflicts. I just don't have time to deal with, and he knew that to best not just care for himself in establishing leaders, as if that's all that matters, he knew for the people that he needed to have multiple leaders, that he needed to have a a multiplicity of people who could lead, guide, shepherd these people, and this is true of the people of Israel, it is true of the people of God throughout all times and all places that we need a multiplicity, a plurality of leaders, and I want to just take a moment to thank God and to celebrate that that it's. I think true in the life of our church here uh, that that I am thankful to God that we have, currently we have five hopefully soon to be six elders in our church. We have seven soon to be eight deacons in the life of our church. Uh, we have a few dozen almost life group leaders in our church. We have numerous teachers. We have numerous teams of people who have different leaders in different capacities who are using their gifts to serve in all sorts of way. And I celebrate that. I rejoice in that. I want to see that continue and to grow. To have more and more leaders in the life life of our church. Even next week, we're going to have the privilege of praying for Josh Topol, our brother right here. He's joining our diaconate, our group of deacons to help serve in the care of our congregation and God has gifted him and equipped him and we've uh, vetted him through the congregation and we're affirming of him and we got last week to officially vote as elders to have him become one of the deacons of our church and so next Sunday, we get to celebrate that and pray for him and it's a wonderful thing to see leadership in the life of the church grow and I am particularly thankful. I want to say this He's not here today, uh, but I am particularly thankful for Pastor Larry in the life of our church. Uh, I cannot help not that he is like Moses, uh, and he is not soon to die. <laughs> He's not leaving us. Uh, but I am thankful to God for my friend and for my fellow Pastor Larry. Uh, if you don't know him, he has served as an elder here for almost 40 years now. In a couple weeks, it'll be 40 years uh, that he has served as an elder, that he and Gladine have been functioning as a li- uh, core part. Part of the life of our church, but I am thankful to God that God has given Pastor Larry humility in his life. He is an immensely gifted person who benefits our church in so many ways that God has given him humility to say, I'm not going to hoard leadership. I'm going to find men to come behind me and alongside of me to serve as pastors of our church. And he is an immense help to me, uh, to, and to the, our other pastors as we seek to care for our church. I am so thankful to him that God by his spirit has worked that into his life as he worked it into Moses's life to not just hoard it, to not just, uh, hold on to, to authority, but to, to share it and to spread it. It has been good for me. It has been good for our church, whether you feel or not, it is good for you. Uh, that he has done that and I am so thankful to him Side note, later this month, we're actually going to have a dinner on Saturday, October the 23rd uh, for him and Gladine in this very room to honor them, thank God for them. Uh, so I'd encourage you to come to that, whether you're a recent part of our church or you've been a long time part of our church to come to that. It'll be a wonderful chance to free meal on top of that, but to celebrate, honor them, praise God for them. There's even tables at the back of the auditorium starting today, and we'll have them up the next couple weeks where there's some cards where I would love for you to take some time, whether this this morning. Morning or next Sunday to write a note of thankfulness uh, to them, highlighting how God has used them in your life to minister to you, and we're going to put those in a nice keepsake uh, for them to minister to them. But as I read this text, I am thankful to God anew for all of our leaders within our church, and Pastor Larry in particular, and God's evident uh, evidence uh, of His grace in Pastor Larry's life. And so, first Moses establishes leaders. Now he's going to get to what I was previewing at the beginning of the sermon, where he's going to actually bring the rebellion of the nation of Israel, right up back into their face. Not in an aggressive way, not in a shaming way, but he's not trying to hide it, not trying to keep that just in the the annals of history, but he's going to remind them of it, lest they forget it, and it's going to be beneficial for them, and it's beneficial for us to read it, because we are not that different from them. So he's going to bring up some very painful memories for these people. This, think, this would have been a reminder to many of the people that are even going to hear it of why grandma or grandpa is not there with them. Like why they're not standing there with them as they're about to go into mode. This is not just some historical story that's distant. And this would have been very weighty, very significant for him to bring back up to them as a people. And so I'm going to read for us the next paragraph, verses 19 to 20. Five, so I'd encourage you to follow along as Moses brings back this painful memory of Israel's rebellion. And I'll call this paragraph, their, he's talking about their passive rebellion, what they didn't do back 40 years ago. Next paragraph will be more their active rebellion, something they did do, but he's gonna remind them of both. So their passive rebellion, he's gonna remind them of, start at verse 19. And when he says Horeb, he's talking about Mount Sinai, okay? He says, then we set out from Horeb and went through all that great and terrifying wilderness that you saw on the way to the hill country of the Amorites as the Lord our God commanded us and we came to Kadesh Barnea and I said to you, you have come to the hill country of the Amorites which the Lord our God is giving us see the Lord your God has set the land before you go up, take possession as the Lord the God of your fathers has told you do not fear or be dismayed then all of you came near me and said Let us send men before us that they may explore the land for us and bring us word again of the way by which we must go up and the cities into which we shall come. The things seemed good to me, and I took twelve men from you, one man from each tribe, and they turned and went up into the hill country and came to the valley of Eshachol and spied it out. And they took in their hands some of the fruit of the land and brought it down to us and and brought us word again and said, it's a good land that the Lord our God is giving us. Sorry, I'm going to continue. I was wrong about paragraph division. I'm going to read all the way down to 33. Yet you would not go up, but rebelled against the command of the Lord your God. And you murmured in your tents and said, because the Lord hated us, he's brought us out of the land of Egypt to give us into the hand of the Amorites to destroy us. Where are we going up? Our brothers have made our hearts melt saying, the people are greater and taller than we. The cities are great and fortified up to heaven. And besides, we have seen the sons of the Anakim there. Then I said to you, do not be in dread or afraid of them. The Lord your God who goes before you will himself fight for you just as he did for you in Egypt before your eyes. And in the wilderness where you have seen how the Lord your God carried you as a man carries his son all the way that you went until you came to this place. Yet in spite of this word, you did not believe the Lord your God who went before you in the way to seek out a place to pitch your tents and fire by night and in the cloud by day to show you by what way you should go. So this section, I think Moses is reminding them of the passive rebellion, what they didn't do back 40 years ago. And I just want to recount it uh, to make sure we're up to speed and then think of its relevance. Brief history of what he's recounting here. Uh, Back as they left Mount Sinai, he's reminding this people that they had been taken across the wilderness, uh, verse 19, that it had been a difficult journey from Mount Sinai to the edge of the promised land 40 years before. And now they arrive at the edge of it and he tells them, he reminds them that in verse 21, Moses told them, God's giving us this land, go up and take possession of it. Like God's promised it to us, go take it. And what they do, they they ask Moses if they can first send these spies in to go check it out, presumably to kind of do some recon work and get some intelligence about where the cities are, what the best paths are, where they can have the best approaches to, for warfare even, I'm assuming. That's why they're sending spies into the land. And Moses agrees to it. He, he says that it seems good to him And they come back, verse 25, with good news. At least partially good news about the land. They even bring some of the grapes. I don't know what those would have been like. Uh, But they bring some of the fruit of the land. Uh, They bring that back and they have, they call it a good land, verse 25. But then verse 26 comes and Moses reminds them a a phrase he's going to repeat later again. He says, you rebelled against the command of the Lord your God. You rebelled against the command of the Lord your God. But why did they do that? Why did they refuse to go in? If the report was good, the land's great, fruit's awesome, uh, it's wonderful. Why didn't they go in? Why did they rebel? Well, we know from what he's recounting here that the spies told them some other things too. Uh, They told them not just how big the fruit was and how great the land was, but they also told them how big the people were and how tall the walls of the cities were. Uh, How they even saw some people that presumably are like giants of their day in the land there. And what verse 28 says is that their hearts melted in fear as they heard this report. The, the, their hearts just melted within them as they heard this report, and they come to a point verse twenty seven where they 're murmuring in their tents, and they even suggest that God hates them that he, that may make no sense to us, but they, they are suggesting that God hates them and that he 's brought them out of Egypt now just to destroy them in the promised land to let just a different people destroy them they 're even accusing God of hatred and destruction toward them and In God's kindness, he lets Moses appeal to them. Like Moses hears this. He he hears this. And then verse 29 and following. It's like he appeals to them a second time saying, don't be afraid of them. Like the God who's gone before us will go before us again. Like he will fight for us. He will be with us. Do it. Like he's giving us this land. Go up, take possession of it. He even, rather than giving in to their depiction of God, hating them and destroying them, he uses this image of, of God being like a father if isn't some of the fathers in the room may understand, it's just of carrying them as a son. When they couldn't do something themselves, he, he's carried them, brought them to this land, and now it's like he's setting them down and saying, now let's do this together. I'll go with you. I will fight for you, but we're go- you're going to go with me. That's the image that he's using with them to counter their lies that they're believing. He's even saying in verse 33 that God has gone before us To find a place for us to live. Like he's scouted out the land. He's found a place for us to live. He will take us into it. He will give it to us. But Moses is reminding them that they did not go in. Even though the first instruction was given, the appeal was made, they did not go in because of their fear. Why is Moses bringing this up? like why is he reminding them from 40 years prior why does this make his short list of what he reminds them of histo- history wise it may feel obvious but the reason he's bringing it up is cuz they're about to go into that land right they're they're about it's a different part of it but they're about to go into that same land with the same cities with the same giants probably with the same walls with the same fruit the same good but also the same the same fight that lay ahead of them and they're going to eventually, they're going to send spies in as well, right? They're going to send spies into Jericho, this strong city with huge walls. They're going to do some similar things that the generation before them did. They're going to hear the same news. They're going to feel the same tension to fear, there is such a human tendency to be afraid of things that seem large and daunting, things that are bigger than us, things that we feel like we cannot do, things we cannot conquer ourselves. And I would know for you, did you notice Moses is using language he's saying, you did this, you did this, you did that. Even though most of the people whose eardrums that was hitting had not been alive back then. He's saying, you guys believe this. You didn't go up. And I think why he's doing that is because he knew, well, one, they're the nation of Israel collectively. But he knew there's a human tendency in all of us, even us today, to fear. And to let fear become the governing thing in our actions, in our decision making. And he's wanting them to see, you guys are no different from your grandma and grandpa. Like you are going to be afraid as well. You're going to be tempted to fear and to paralysis and to disobedience. And he wants them to be aware. The reason he revisits this is he wants them to be aware of that dynamic in the human heart. To hear of things and to let fear just melt our hearts. To let it lead us to, to paralysis, to inaction. To, to not do the very things that God has, done, has commanded us to do. And he wants them to know, and God would want us to know today, we are not just passive creatures who feel fear rise up within us and then just are governed by that fear, right? Fear rises up within us and then we have a responsibility to do something with that. uh, To not just be passive and be taken down the stream like a leaf floating on a river. But I I read a quote from G.K. Chesterton recently. He said something like, dead things go with the stream, living things can go against it. Like when we feel this stream and this tug of fear, we have capacity as the people of God, especially if we have the spirit of God within us, to not just be drugged along by fear, but to combat it. Like when we feel our hearts melting as we hear about something that's intimidating or daunting for us, we don't just have to let our heart keep melting. Right? It may start to melt, but we have capacity and resource to solidify, to, at least to ask God and to have him start to re-solidify that heart that is melting, to give us courage, to give us a steeliness about us that is willing to face hard things, that's willing to do hard things. And the way that we reinforce our hearts when they are tempted to melt Is by getting the truth of God in us, by hearing who he is, hearing what he's done, remembering the promises that he's made. That is how we address fear. It's not just by mustering up willpower, but reminding ourselves of who God is, what he has commanded, what he has pledged, what he has promised, and what he has done to show us his strength, what he has done to show us his power. That is how we can reinforce our hearts when they start to melt. And we are no different. This generation of Israelites was no different from the one that came before them. We are no different from them. Like we are tempted to fear. We are tempted to be cowards when we see big situations, when we see problems that feel unsolvable, when we come across people who seem so hardened in their sin that we think there is no way they would ever believe the good news. And we have a relationship that is so broken that we see no humanly possible way that it can be reconciled. And so when we come across those things, sometimes we just give up. Like when we have a sin we're struggling against. We feel like I have tried so many times. I cannot defeat this. We start to just believe it can't be beat. And we stop being active. We stop fighting. We end up being paralyzed and still and doing nothing. And we let the fear. We let the size of the enemy. And we have a strong, strong enemy, don't we? One that should, in a sense, strike fear. And should make us feel small. But these guys felt like grasshoppers in the land. We must remember that our enemies are like grasshoppers to Christ. Like if we think we're small in comparison to them, think about them in comparison to Christ and let that give you resolve. Don't compare yourself to the problem, compare the problem to the strength of Christ and let that give you encouragement to fight, to do what God has commanded you to do, to make effort to bring relief, to to take the gospel to that person, to lean in to this difficult relationship, to fight hard to put sin to death in your life. Like let God steal your heart again. Don't let it melt. And so we need to remember our failures, but some of us are prone to cowardice. We're prone to inactivity. We, and there is not virtue in that. Like sometimes we think, oh, this, that just doing nothing is the best solution, that passivity is somehow righteous, that, that doing nothing is somehow dignified, and it is not. Inaction can be driven, was driven by these, in these people's case, by cowardice, not by wisdom. And like when we feel that rise up in our heart and we know it's been a tendency in our life, we look back at it and review it and think, why do I do nothing? Like why am I passive? Why do I let my heart melt? And then reinforce it with God's commands, reinforce it with his promises that he is with you, that he will help, that he can conquer the things that you cannot. And so Moses pointed them to their past rebellion, their passive rebellion of not going up into the land. But then in this last section, the last two paragraphs, I guess it is, of this chapter, he's going to point them to a part of the story many of us forget. We may have heard this part of the story when we were kids or something where they didn't believe the promises. God kind of disciplines them. This is a part of the story... We, especially if we were Israelites, would want to forget. I think we'd want to just, let's keep this in the past. Like, this was a real embarrassing thing that we did, a really stupid thing that we did. But Moses is like, nope, we're getting it all on the table. I'm reminding you of what we did, how wrong it was. And he's going to talk about active rebellion, something they actually did that God told them not to do. And so following with me, 34, all the way to the end of the chapter, Moses continues in this speech telling them this. He says the Lord heard your words and was angered and he swore not one of these men of this evil generation shall see the good land that I swore to give to your fathers except Caleb the son of Jephunneh he shall see it and to him and to his children I will give the land on which he has trodden because he has wholly followed the Lord. Even with me the Lord was angry on your account and said you shall not go in there. Joshua, the son of Nun, who stands before you, he shall enter. Encourage him, for he shall cause Israel to inherit it. And as for your little ones, who you said would become a prey, and your children, who today have no knowledge of good or evil, they shall go in there. And to them I will give it, and they shall possess it. But as for you, turn and journey into the wilderness in the direction of the Red Sea. Then you answered me, We've sinned against the Lord. We ourselves will go up and fight just as the Lord our God commanded us. And every one of you fastened on his weapons of war and thought it easy to go up into the hill country. And the Lord said to me, say to them, do not go up or fight for I am not in your midst lest you be defeated before your enemies. So I spoke to you and you would not listen. But you rebelled, here's that phrase again, you've rebelled against the command of the Lord and presumptuously went up into the hill country. Then the Amorites who lived in that hill country came out against you and chased you as bees do and beat you down in Seir as far as Hormah. And you returned and wept before the Lord. But the Lord did not listen to your voice or give ear to you. So you remained at Kadesh many days, the days that you remained there. This would have been a situation that may have prompted a, a temptation to shame, embarrassment for the nation of Israel, right? Briefly explaining what Moses is telling them happened is that God heard of their refusal to go in and he's angry. He's, he's angered about it. And he even calls them an evil generation, right? Verse 35 calls them an evil generation. And he says that none of them are going to enter in the land. Uh, earlier in Numbers, we know it's anybody 20 and up. He's saying, you will not enter the land. He gives a couple exceptions, right, in this text today. Uh, He mentioned Joshua, and then he mentions Caleb. I don't have time to get into the backstory of those, but those two men, he says, will get to enter into the land. They were the two spies who gave a good report, right? Uh, That would have been important for these people to know because they were going to be leaders as they went into the land. So there's these two exceptions, but everybody else, he's saying, you will not enter the land. And then there's this ironic truth where God's saying, You guys are so concerned about your kids and your grandkids and their safety. I'm going to let them go into the land. Like they actually will go in. Like in the next generation, they actually will enter the land. And I have just note, as an aside, sometimes generations have to fight the fights that the generation before them should have fought but didn't, don't they? Uh, sometimes when a when generation is passive, sometimes the generation that comes behind has to fight the fights that should have been fought by their parents. And the same is true of our kids. It's not just the people that come before us. There's people coming behind us who will have to fight the fights that we didn't fight. So he tells them, your kids will go in, but you won't. And then there is this, like, phony repentance that these people do. Like this half-hearted repentance, right? When they hear this, when they hear God say, verse 40, as for you, turn and leave here. Like you are not coming into this land. Now all of a sudden they're like, oh, like we've sinned. Like we're we're sorry, God. Like we'll go do it. Like we'll we'll go into the land. We'll fight. And they, they get ready to go fight and to do what God's told them to do, it's like when, a, when you, t- if you're a parent, you understand this perfectly, or if you've ever been a kid, you understand this completely, where you were told to do something, and you were told, and told, and told, and your parents are extending mercy to you, second chance, fifth chance, tenth chance, and they're finally like, done consequence coming. Now the tears come. Oh, I'll do it. I'll do it. I'll do it. And then you go say, okay. And you maybe got told no instead. You go do this. Like, go clean the toilet. I needed you to pick up your clothes. Now I'll go clean the toilet. You're like, oh no, I'll, I'll pick up my clothes. Uh, I'll go do that. And it's like, no, you were just told clean the toilet. Now you're just disobeying me in a different way, right? Like you were finding a new way to disobey me by doing what I used to tell you to do. And if that's what these people are doing, they're saying, oh, we don't like that. We don't like that consequence. We'll do what you told us to do the first time, even though God just told them, don't do that. Like, and he gave them mercy again. Like, Moses appeals to them again, just like he did about them not going in. He gives them a second chance and says, guys, do not do this. Like, God has told me he won't be with you. Like, he's not going with you. Like, you will lose if you do this. It is not even a question you will lose. You will get destroyed. Moses is trying to stop them. They presumptuously go up, don't they? That word is even used. They presumptuously go. They think it easy somehow. And their twist of mind is a thing that they were so struck fear of. Now they think it's going to be easy to do. Well, God will, God will help us, right? And they get beat down by the Amorites. Interestingly, if you were here last Sunday, I know bees were chasing us around last Sunday. That may be a vivid memory in your mind. This would have been worse than this. He says that they were like bees just coming out at these people, like running them off. They got destroyed. They got embarrassed. They come back to camp, verse 45, weeping before the Lord. And then it says that the Lord didn't listen to their voice or give ear to them. Why did Moses include this? Like, Why why didn't he just gloss over this? It would have been enough to just remind them why they didn't get to go in the land. Why has he mentioned this? I think he mentions this because he knows this generation is about to go into the land and he knows they are going to fight these fights and he wants them to know if you win, it will be because I win it for you. It will be because I am with you. It will not be because you have good formations and because you have good swords and you have intel about where to go and what cities to go to. It won't be because you have good commanders. It won't be because any of that. It will be only because I am with you and because I give you victory. And he wants that to be deeply baked into their minds and hearts that victory will come not from strategy and numbers and tactics, but from God himself, the presence of the Lord with them. Because these people, when they went up to the Amorites that day, they had probably the same people, the same weapons, the same knowledge that they would have had if they had obeyed the first time. And instead of winning, they get routed. That's a clear indicator that victory hinges on whether God is with us or not. And what we can learn from this is that, I was trying to think of how to say this, that our motivations in what we do for the Lord matter as much as the mechanics of doing it. They even matter more than the mechanics of actually doing it. Sometimes we just think what what God just wants and needs is just my effort, my willpower, my determination to do these things, to have this conversation, to read this thing, to pray this often, to show up to this thing, to just put the effort into it. And if I just do that victory will come. Health will come. This this will be solved. Enemies will be conquered and God wants to blow that idea up. He wants our effort. He calls forth our effort to see walls come down, to see enemies defeated, to see enemy territory taken, right? To see sin conquered. It, he uses our effort as part of the equation but through it and under it and all of it is the work of God himself. And it, it matters that we, as we put effort into spiritual growth, even into spiritual warfare, into evangelism, into trying to take enemy territory it matters that we do so with trust it matters that we do so with a sense of our dependency that God has to make this thing work it's not just a matter of me doing it and voila it happens but we should be prayerful we should be dependent asking God to work because they they appeared outwardly to be very godly in this moment didn't they oh we're sorry like we really are serious this time we'll go do it we'll fight we'll risk our lives They appeared godly, but in their own hearts, they were trusting in themselves. And God lets them get routed to show the, the weakness of them as a people. And we're going to see in Deuteronomy over and over again, God saying to them, you are not as great as you think you are. Like, I did not choose you because you're great, because you're big, because you're wise. I didn't pick you, and I'm not going to give you victory because of those things. I'm giving you victory because you're weak. And like, it'll show my ability. It will show my strength. And they needed to hear that. We need to hear that as we engage in trying to take enemy territory, as we seek to try to to take the gospel to people, as we seek to try to grow in godliness and put sin to death in our life, we need to do so with dependence upon the Lord to actually give victory, to actually give success. And it's helpful when we have sinned. Some of us we struggle with passivity and inaction. Some of us struggle with brazenness and just think, well, I, I'm gifted. I can conquer this thing. I can do this thing. And sometimes we need to revisit our past failures or we have just brazenly, arrogantly, presumptuously tried to do things on God's behalf without even consulting Him. Without even asking for His favor, asking for His help. If that is our tendency, we need to address that and call that out and ask for the Lord's forgiveness and ask Him to help us obey, not just with the right mechanics but with the right motivations as well part of the value of remembering our rebellion is to know ourselves know our tendencies right know where our weak spots are know where the holes in our armor are to know uh, where we can be defeated and how we can give in to temptation so part of it is knowing ourself. But part of why I think God in his kindness allows us to remember our rebellion calls us to remember our rebellion is not just so we can learn more about ourselves, but so we can remember things about him because part of why i think moses wanted these people to hear this story to hear the story of israel to hear their story of rebellion passive and active wasn't just to know themselves better and think what we need to do we'll do it better this next time we'll we'll shore that up but to know that god is gracious to them He wants that to be deeply embedded in their mind and hearts is that God is gracious to us. And as we remember our rebellion, as we remember how passively or arrogantly, actively we rebelled against God, it is a reminder to us that if God is with me, if God is for me, it is not because I've earned it. It's not because I have obeyed him well and now he's giving success to me. It's because he shows grace to me. He bears with me. He forgives me. He uh, endures my sin against him. He is patient with me. We learn things about God's graciousness to us. Because I would note from this text, and you'll see it as we go through Deuteronomy, that though God did not go with them, he explicitly says he didn't go with them in battle up against the Amorites, He did go with them into the wilderness, right? Like he didn't go with them into battle when they were arrogantly going up to fight, but he did go with them into the wilderness. Like he stayed with these people who were passively rebellious, actively rebellious. God stayed with them. Like he, he went with, out with them into the wilderness. He, he patiently endured their sin against him, their rebellion against him. And yes, there was consequences. That whole generation died off in the wilderness. But God still heard them. It says he didn't listen to them or give ear to them. But God heard them and he stayed with them and he loved them. Not because they had earned it, but because God wanted to. Because God was willing to extend forgiveness and grace and mercy to them. God stayed with them. He loved them. He led them even out into the wilderness. And the same can be true of us as we consider our rebellion against God. But even in increased measure, with increased confidence, we can know that God is willing to show grace to us, willing to stay with us in spite of our rebellion. Because this covenant that was being renewed and established here was a good covenant in some ways. Uh, There there was this agreement, but there was those blessings and curses at the end, wasn't there? And a spoiler alert, I'm trying to give these maybe one a week. They're going to break the covenant And there's curses that need to be borne by them, right? Not blessings to be earned by them. But there is a better covenant that we get to be part of. The one our church is named after, right? Christ's covenant. There's a different, a new, a better arrangement of God with his people who are just as sinful as those Israelites. We are just as sinful as them. We passively rebel. We actively rebel against God. But in the covenant that is between the Father in Christ and even that we get to be part of it's important for us to remember that those blessings and curses guess what the blessing has already been earned by Christ and the curse has already been laid down fully upon Christ and he he bore all of the curse that should come upon us for our guilt. That's what happened when he went to the cross as he was taking our guilt upon himself. Moses couldn't read this. Like, Moses couldn't bear the weight of it himself as one person of one nation of people. Jesus bore the wrath of God for the sins of all of his people of all time when he went to the cross. he, He bore the curse for us and then he earned A reward. He earned blessing for God's people as well by living righteously and obediently and God raised him back up from the dead to show that he approved. And now in that arrangement, that agreement between the father and son, we can become part of that and we get to receive the blessing of God. And the curse of God has already been removed for us if and only if we are actually united with Christ. If we are joined with him by faith then we get to have that that curse has been lifted, it's been dealt with, and those blessings can be shared with us that Jesus has earned, right? There's this new, better covenant that we can be part of. And so the good news for us is that we don't need to conceal our sin, right? We We don't need to hide it. We don't need to cover it up. We don't need to be embarrassed of it and let no one else see it, refuse to acknowledge it. In fact, to be part of this covenant, you have to acknowledge it. Like that's a condition of being part of it is that you own your sin. You acknowledge it. You confess it. You lay it before the Lord and even before others and say, I am unworthy. Please forgive me based on the merits of Jesus, not me. And praise God, he will. Uh, That is good news for us. We don't need to conceal. We can confess our sin and we can learn from it. I would say it this way because our sin has been canceled in a way at the cross. It doesn't need to be concealed right? We don't need to repress memories of our sin. We can revisit them. We can remember them and we can learn from them. We can grow in wisdom. George Washington, just in closing, as he was writing that farewell address, if you remember it, he was in hoping that his sins would be forgotten and removed. What was he appealing to? He, he appealed first to his ignorance, saying, I don't even think I did anything wrong, really. Uh, And then he appealed to, did you note this? He appealed to his 45 years of service with zeal, saying, remember that. Like when I, if you know that I did things wrong, remember I served. Remember I did all these things. So he was basing his hope that people would forget these things on his own worthiness and then on his service that he had earned their willingness to forget, right? When we deal with God, we dare not do that, right? Like we cannot plead ignorance of our sin. Like none of us can say, I'm not aware of sin that I've committed. There is sin we have committed. There is rebellion that has been in our hearts and in our lives. And we cannot appeal to some decades of service and say, God on that on my merit please forgive me like please let my errors be relegated to history like the only thing that we can appeal to is not 45 years of service it is the 33 years of service of Jesus right that that he lived righteously and that that record can be counted to me and to you and that is what we appeal to God on is not our own ignorance our own righteousness but the obedience of Jesus his life death and resurrection amen and that's what allows us to revisit our sinful past and to do it in a way that we can grow in wisdom. I want to pray for us. I want to invite you to stand. We're going to sing a closing song before we are dismissed. Father in heaven, we, uh, we come to you thankful again for your word, thankful for your grace and your patience to your people that you exemplified in how you related to Israel in this day and time, and how you more fully even exemplified toward us. We are grateful that you did not leave us in our rebellion, our active, our passive rebellion, that you did not let us bear the curse that should come down upon us in your wrath, but that you laid that upon your son Jesus. But I pray as a church that we would be a people willing to revisit and remember the sins of our past, not to be shamed, not to be embarrassed, but to, to learn from them and to be able to revel that much more in your grace toward us. And uh, we pray even as we sing now that we would sing with hearts of thankfulness and joy because of your grace and your love toward us. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen.